Welcome to What If You Just Leave It, a podcast about rewilding. I'm Dr. Sam Rose, but I prefer just Sam. And in late 2019, I had to choose a project for my master's degree in photography. At the time, I was reading the book Wilding by Isabella Tree and was amazed by what they'd achieved for biodiversity at the Nepp Estate in West Sussex. Now, having worked in nature conservation for most of my career and being a bit of a tree hugger anyway, the choice of projects suddenly became clear and easy, rewilding. So these podcasts relate my journey through the project, the many fantastic conversations I've had and fascinating places I've visited. You can see the accompanying photos at my website, whatifyoujustleaveit.info, and I'm aiming to create an exhibition and book in due course to raise awareness of rewilding and its importance. I hope you find this interesting and enjoyable. It's my first series of podcasts, so I'd love to find out what you think. Again, the web address is whatifyoujustleaveit.info. So thank you for listening, and on with the podcast. So welcome to the second part of my interview with Ali Driver. If you've come to this fresh, it would probably help you to listen to part one first. But over the next 30 minutes, we cover a whole range of other issues relating to rewilding. In particular, Ali talks about the importance and benefits of rewilding from biodiversity gain and climate change mitigation to health and well-being. He also talks about perceptions, the way rewilding can be presented and perceived by different audiences. And finally, we also touch on rewilding Britain's role and how there are high hopes for the rewilding network. So enough of me. I hope you enjoy it, and thank you for listening. Well, that really ties into the, the next section, which is why is rewilding important? Why should anyone care? What, yeah. what do you say to that? What's your, you know, what's well, your comeback on this? The first thing, I, the first thing I want to say in in response to that question is that we need to bear in mind the level of rewilding, the amount of rewilding that is feasible mm. and desirable and 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 is is ambitious enough to to move us significantly towards recovering biodiversity yep. and and to, to significantly help us tackle climate change and at rewilding written we have an ambition of a million one million hectares by 2100 2100 one million hectares is about five percent mm. so that's the first thing to say we are not talking about rewilding the entire country we are talking about a very small percentage five percent and at the moment that figure is less than one percent way less than one percent so we've got a way to go but i think five percent is eminently achievable without impacting on food production and this is again is something that comes up a lot oh if you rewild everywhere you're going to you know what's where we're going to get our food from well first of all we're not planning to rewild everywhere we're planning to rewild five percent secondly most of that five percent will be very marginal land that is probably unproductive well uh, is not viable unprofitable unprofitable without without basic payments and thirdly and perhaps most important of all if you're worried about food risk then we need to stop wasting 40% of the food we produce to eat because that is uh, just, well, it's an international disgrace. The world, world worldwide figure is 30%. Yeah. The Western world figure is 40%. That is just shocking. All the effort and energy and land and water that's gone in to produce those, those uh, millions of tonnes of food that get thrown away. So, so we can do that. This is doable and definitely doable without impact on, on food production. And... As I say, you know, several of those projects produce good quality food anyway and will do for a very long time. Can I just dig into that one a little bit? Yeah. Say this, this, this landowner I met yesterday, he was looking, he wants to work with nature more. Yeah. He's fairly intensive at the moment on non-marginal land. It's good, it's good quality yeah. farmland. Yeah. But he, he's thinking about going organic. 
and but doesn't want to just let it go to, to, to wood pasture doesn't want to let it go wild what, what what would be the incentive for him to take a bigger step well I wouldn't necessarily be encouraging a land because it's like not much yeah, yeah because he's got productive land what I should explain is where this 5% fits yeah. in with everything else what we want to see is as indeed Prime Minister has just signed up to 30% of our land being prioritised for nature much of that and we, we're saying well let's say 25% wild, rewilding and 25% high value mm. nature conservation. conservation and that can be through sustainable farming that can be through nature reserves like this where we are now that can be through protected sites that are in good condition well, um, and that's a, that's a, that's another, a sort of challenge that's another, that's another, <laughs> it's another conversation yeah yeah so if you had 25% of the land that was in that kind of condition that connected you with this 5% core rewilding areas large scale core rewilding areas we could really genuinely turn things around that's the kind of scale of ambition but that's where I would put your farmer that you've just talked to I'd say right you need to be part of that 25% not part of the 5% rewilding I get you do you think this links into this concept of nature recovery networks yes it should be the nature recovery network should be exactly that it it should be uh, linking habitats to allow for climate change and allow species and habitats to migrate up country and up slope as well Mm. and they need to be connecting along river corridors and they need to be connecting high value farming areas with core rewilding areas so species and communities in in each of those two situations can migrate into the other place if appropriate for those species and plant communities it's, it's standard by geography it my, is it's, ba- basic, it's basic stuff know. it's lawton stuff yeah. but now it we we've got a better feel for the scale of what yeah. we need to do and for for us at rewilding britain our bit is to try and make this five percent happen yeah i gotcha we won't dwell on the, the nature recovery networks stuff now so why is rewilding important um, for nature, yep. for biodiversity, yep. for ecosystem services, yep. uh, for the economy, uh, yep. and the, uh, yep. and the people. people. That's inextricably linked, of course, because it has to work for not just for the landowner, by the way, not just for the person who owns the 5,000 acres mm. and all the people that work on those 5,000 acres, but also for the peripheral community around the edges, you know, the, the benefits for bed and breakfast and petrol station expenditure and village shop and, and all the rest of it. You know, there are, we need to try to make sure that where these flagship sites are developing, that they are also uh, enabling a more economic resilience in and around them and not just isolated islands of success. Health and well-being? Yep. We know we're learning more and more about the value of green space in terms of, in terms of mental health, in terms of recreation and, and access and exercise. However, we're also learning more that it's about the quality of that green space. Just walking out into a boring football pitch with, with dog turds everywhere <laughs> is not necessarily going to be good for the soul. Walking out into I would argue a nature reserve like this or a, a truly wild landscape where you've got a chance of seeing a beaver or a, a golden eagle or a pine martin or a rare butterfly. You know, that is really the, the peak of this opportunity. And we're, I think we're barely scratching the surface with, with maximising that. Funnily enough, I've just seen an announcement on a, on a fund for green prescriptions and, and trying to connect up nature-based organisations yeah. with health service organisations to deliver ideas for this. 
So health and well-being, absolutely. And education is another education, one. You know, social. getting people out into the countryside and learning about natural processes. This is, this is the thing that comes up again and again. It's that there's a massive disconnect with nature. You said as a kid, okay, you may have been in a specific situation, quite isolated. You were out there all the time, yeah. you know, finding worms, looking at beetles. Chewing dirt. Chewing dirt, <laughs> as you do. Yeah. I did some of that, but not nearly as much as you did. Yeah. But people, do people do that now? Um, well, some do, not many though, not many. and they're not, and they're not, they're, it's they're not, not, it's not unfortunately the allowed to be as as adventurous mm. as they could otherwise be because of fears, mainly related to other people mm. rather than the nature itself. But we're also, but because we become detached from nature, we also become afraid of it. You know, <laughs> I must tell you this little. I was just an aside. This has just come to my mind. But I, I once went on. Um, I think it was Channel 4 News or something, uh, talking about ponds, actually talking about ponds and the value of ponds. And I took in a jar of mini beasts, you know, yeah. diving beetle, newt, snails, stuff like that, in a, in a kilner jar. Right. And I plonked it on the desk and the interviewer, I can't remember his name, he's quite a famous news reader. Um, he just, I put it on his desk and he, rec- he went, Ugh! like that. And he sort of recoiled like a child from this jar of very attractive mini beasts. <laughs> yeah, I thought, bloody hell, we've got some, we, we got some have, work to do we here. We have got some work to do. <laughs> but it's another shifting baseline, isn't it? If yeah, you yeah. don't do it as a yeah, and you don't see kid, it, you, know, you don't see it anymore. Yeah. You don't see it happening. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's the um, new normal is, is to not do it. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Climate change. Yeah. So if you're talking climate change, we're talking about several strands of connectivity. Yeah. Obviously, carbon yeah. sequestration is a primary element of that. Incidentally, you may be aware that we raised a petition last year which got over 100,000 signatures in about six weeks, which led to a parliamentary debate, which I then went to and briefed ministers for. That parliamentary debate led directly, I have now been told by Lord Goldsmith, directly to the creation of the £640 million Nature for Climate Fund. I just wanted to emphasise that because it goes to show that if you come up with a logical, coherent argument and you are prepared to follow the right democratic processes and you are you are strong and committed and logical and reasonable about these things you can make change happen and and that, and that actually you know underpins what we are doing in rewilding Grim. we are trying to catalyze change we, we're going to stay small tiny organization you know five FTEs we want to catalyze change but through these processes we we can do that so that was an aside, but, okay. it was a, but it was a, it was a really it's, important example important of because how you, you can make change. Often see your your work directly influencing government. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. if you've seen yeah. it, that, that's fantastic. Yeah, to yeah. See. So so anyway, coming back to climate change. So what we were arguing in that is that we needed a massive upscaling of expenditure on on landscape scale habitat restoration. Massive massive increase in expenditure on that. Six hundred forty million. It's a start. It's nowhere near enough. But we need that because if we were to restore significant areas of our landscape, we could make huge inroads into sequestering the carbon that is already out there. On top of all the things we need to do about reducing emissions, the stuff that's already out there needs to be sequestered better. And by restoring woodlands, natural regeneration, scrub, healthy heathlands, moorlands, bogs, wetlands, we can do that. And um, also by not ploughing. 
Yeah, so yeah, yeah. All sorts of carbon that comes out of the yeah. ploughed fields. All sorts of management activities could be modified yeah. to reduce that. But we were focusing on the habitat restoration okay. uh, uh, and the funding for it. But it's not just carbon. You know, we're getting more extreme rainfall events, as we know. Mm. That means more extreme flood events. Yeah. And so slowing the flow off the hills is a critically important part of the rewilding activities because you are roughening up the hillsides, creating these thicker mosaics of vegetation restoring peat bogs, etc. And by the way, again, we are only scratching the surface of this because we are currently spending less than 1% of the National Capital Flood Risk Programme on natural flood management. Less than 1%. And I know that because I used to, I wrote, my, I and my team wrote the policy, right. which should be being applied. We wrote it five years ago, but it's, it's again, we're only scratching the surface with it at the moment. Does it, does it, does it frustrate you a little that this stuff that you've you known for 40 years, um, in terms of you know, natural flood management, for example, is only now just beginning to be recognised, and even then at such a small level? Um, or do you just think it is good that it's now being recognised? Five years ago, I was happy that it was now being recognised right. because I had a meeting with a minister yeah. at his request yeah. to, to convince him. That, that was Rory Stewart, okay. who invited me to a meeting with him to explain why we needed to do natural flood management. He listened. He created a £15 million budget that was to be spread over four years. And the Environment Agency have not contributed anything more to that since that meeting five years ago. We've still just had the £15 million. And bearing in mind the annual budget's around £650 million, Dean over four years is, is less than 1%. Lot, and okay. so I'm frustrated now that we haven't moved on to be more flexible about what and where we do these things. Having said that, I am involved in one of the, one of the landowners who's rewilding is directly linked to a rewilding uh, to a natural flood management project that the EA is running in the air catchment to reduce flood risk in Leeds. So there are tiny examples, but we need them everywhere. Yeah. Okay, so why is rewilding important? We've done for nature, obviously for biodiversity, ecosystem services, the economy, well-being, social benefits, climate change. It's, it's almost a no-brainer, isn't it? It isn't. It's, to be honest, it is a no-brainer in the places in the places where we're advocating, yeah. i.e. not in places where you're going to significantly impact on food production. Yeah. It is a no-brainer, but it's difficult for us to change. You know, we are a stubborn species, yeah. and people are going to need to see others doing it first. Like, you know, NEP is a cracking example. Most of the people that I'm dealing with, and there's about another 20 NEP scale or bigger that I'm now dealing with, in, in England, just in England, most of those have been inspired by NEP. They've either been there or they've read the book or they've seen it on TV or whatever. Vir virtually all of them uh, have, have been partially motivated by that. And so if we had a NEP in every county, that would then motivate loads more around them to follow suit. And so it would grow. So, you know, bear in mind what I said earlier about 34 years in public service. That was a marathon. And, I, and I'm now thoroughly enjoying the first few miles of another marathon. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's excellent. I'm going to just leap across rewilding Britain for a minute. I'll come back to that at the end, if that's okay. And talk about perceptions. Yeah. Okay, so public perceptions of rewilding. You have said in, in various podcasts and so on that, that people, you'll talk about this with people at the pub, people are interested in it. I've talked about it with people. Some people know about it. Some people have no idea. It's seen as, you know, potentially large landowner-led, 
People confuse reintroductions with rewilding. They think there's wolves going to be coming back. How do you at Rewilding Britain present rewilding in a way where you buy, you feel it is something that can be digestible or embraced by the general public? Well, I think I present it in the way that I've presented it with you today, is I try to be reasonable and rational. Mm. Obviously, you've got to be enthusiastic and you've got to, to be passionate and believe in what you're saying. But, I, you know, it's very much not about imposition. It's about opening the door for people and showing them what it could do. And, I, you know, you cannot beat a good before and after photo and a, and a NEP-style story where, you know, in 10 to 15 years you see an incredible change in biodiversity and uh, aesthetic beauty of a site. So all of those things matter. You know, I give a lot of lectures and presentations and now, of course, webinars. You know, I don't want to be aggressive. I don't want, I don't want to criticise anyone for the way they've been doing things. And I certainly do not criticise farmers for the way we've been farming for the last 50 to 100 years. That has been driven by policy. It's not their fault. Of course, there's a few bad apples, but there's a few bad apples in every aspect of society. So it's not about criticising an approach. It's about offering up ideas and enthusiasm for a slightly different approach in some parts of the country. And doing it that way seems to be working. You know, we are getting more and more people coming on board, and that's why we need to set up this rewilding network, which mm. we're working on at the moment. But are the people who are coming on board self-selected? Are they the interested? Are they the knowledgeable? I mean, I, you know, we can have this conversation, but I've got enough knowledge of the background to know what you're talking about. What about the people who, after lockdown, went to the Lake District and left their litter there? What about the people who come to Dirtle Door and, and don't care about yeah. the environment? Uh, yeah, okay. Um, so I'm yes, the people, yes, the people we are dealing with are self-selecting. They're the people who own land, yeah. who are thinking of change, and have been inspired by what they've seen or heard, whether it be from us or from NEP or whatever. Changing behaviours of the public is a whole different ball game, and I'm not, you know, we are not, we are not going to be able to make significant inroads to that with a tiny organisation of five FTEs worth of people. However, if there are places where people can go where they are likely to have a fantastic experience of wildlife, it is more likely that slowly through the generations, we will gradually be able to bring society back into greater connection with nature and a greater respect for it. Now, this is going to take generations. It's taken several generations, well, one or two generations for us to deteriorate in this way and to behave like we now behave in terms of this littering and abuse and complete disregard for the countryside. And of course, there will always still be lots of people who you won't change at all. But I do believe if we provide people with these really special places and they, and they have a special experience, there will be more people who then start to be more connect, feel more connected with nature and respectful of it. So changing behaviour of the public is not, of the wider general public, is not necessarily within the scope of... of it's not, it's, not a, it's not our no. priority remit, but we would expect that there would be a very slow uh, beneficial impact through, through rewilding areas of our land and allowing people to see them. Okay, here's the thing. The National Trust don't like to use the word rewilding. 
Yep. They don't like the R word. Uh, they, well, it depends who you talk oh, to. Okay, but broad policy yep. is not used. Yep. A lot of people in this country go to National Trust properties. Yep. That's the potential, that's a big potential market for public perception. Yep. But if they're choosing not to use it because they they fear it? Okay, why do they, why do they well, choose I'll not tell to you, use I'll it? Well, I'll tell you why. I, I mean, I've been, another thing I do is I'm a specialist, a volunteer specialist mm. advisor for the National Trust, and I used to be on their Natural Environment Advisory Panel. Yep. And so I know their directors well, and I have a lot of support from some of their directors for rewilding, yeah. and some of them are quite happy to use the word. However, they are still very sensitive about upsetting some of their tenants who are, for example, sheep farmers. Yeah. And so th this is, I would describe it as work in progress. They, they, are, they have great sympathy for what we're trying to do. They are trying to do it themselves. And indeed, I've been to National Trust Estates to advise them on rewilding at yeah. their request. Ennerdale is one, isn't it? Well, Ennerdale's, yeah, partially owned by National Trust. But there are other places around the country where, okay. uh, where I've been invited to advise on rewilding by the estate manager or the regional manager. So don't, don't get the impression they don't support rewilding. They most certainly do. But they, are, they have, with such a huge membership and such a huge land ownership with so many tenants, they are super sensitive about using the word and they're not the only ones by the way um lots of other organizations uh environmental organizations are in a in a similar position wildlife trust. rsbb wildlife trust but they're they're changing you know some wildlife trusts openly use the word mm. and you know we're working with derbyshire wildlife trust in the peak district mm. they are fantastic leaders on rewilding they're forging on and, and doing great things to develop a a wilder peak district uh, using the rewilding term. So it depends where you are and who you talk to. And they've moved a long way since two or three years ago when I first started talking to, to the, you know, the chief execs and the directors in those organizations about it. But they're not there yet. One of my aims personally is to get them over the line and, and get them to understand that what they're doing at Horswater and what they're doing at Ennerdale and Eastern Moors in the Peak District all these NGO organizations, this is rewilding. Look at the case studies on our rewilding network website that we're launching soon, and you will see, you will see that what you're doing matches up very well with what these private landowners are doing. It's rewilding. And yes, it might be only level two on the rewilding spectrum naught to five, but it's rewilding and you're moving in the right direction. That is, it is fascinating though, because the super sensitivity is, is really interesting. Because if, if organizations like that are super sensitive, which, are the organisations that the public have a lot of the contact with, rather than the policy makers, rather than a small organisation that, that, that yourself. I, you know, it's, I'm trying to sort of think through how it can be better presented so people don't feel... Well, I think the way... I, I feel very, very strongly that the way to do it is the way we're going. And when you see our rewilding network pages in a few weeks' time, you will see what I mean. That, that is entirely reasonable, rational, logical, non-scary, but ambitious and stretching. And that, for me, is the way to go. We need to move, move people away from the wolves and bears and land abandonment, Absolutely. you know, yep. uh, perception of rewilding that is promoted or has been promoted in the past in the media. Yep. Less so these days, to be honest. People, even the media are cottoning on to the reality of what rewilding actually is. Slowly. Um, yes, yeah, slowly. So we are getting there. Again, marathon, not sprint. Yeah. That's, that's really helpful for me in terms of the next stage of the project. Okay, so just looking at Rewilding Britain, 
to quote, you want rewilding to flourish across Britain to tackle the climate emergency and extinction crisis, to reconnect people with the natural world and help individuals and communities to thrive with new opportunities. Break that down. What, what are the aspirations? You said one million hectares? One million hectares by 2100, okay. rewilding. Yeah. Rewilding. Yeah. Present in, participle. In terms of your, the definition that you've set up. Yeah, in yeah. terms of our definition yeah. and, and principles. Yeah. And that's approximately 5% of the land surface of Britain, England, Scotland and Wales. And do you have aspirations around public engagement at all? Or is it this is about the land? We are, in parallel with that, engaging the public. We have a huge growing number of social media followers and supporters. We send an e-newsletter out to thousands and thousands of people. I couldn't tell you the figures, but it is literally going up all the time. And I think actually... You know, COVID has helped concentrate people's minds a bit on how we need to respect nature. Well, it's, it's better brought and, nature and, back into the, yeah, the roads yeah. and the streets and the so, gardens. Yeah, yes, we want to appeal to the general public because we need the public to support things like the petition for that led to that 640 mm. million. We wouldn't have done that without 100,000 100, signatures in six, seven weeks. We need public support for beaver reintroduction. We need public support for... Um, Elm rewilding being in elms, you know, all of all of these things matter. We've got to, it can't just be done by by the landowners. We need to bring the public with us. Do you think the um, the five percent is achievable? Uh, it's stretching, but achievable. I think Scotland will deliver the majority of it. There's lots of great things happening in Scotland already. I sadly for me, I don't cover Scotland, no. but but I'm aware of various major projects going on there, and the Scottish Rewilding Alliance is, is set up and running and. Yeah, they're doing, they're doing great things there. I'm focusing on England and Wales, and at the moment, most of the activity is in England. And it is largely focused on the major landowners. And other organisations. Yes, organisations uh, who, are, who, who are, are landowners. So they're either ENGOs yeah. or, for example, the MOD. Yeah, um, I need to tackle others, like the Crown Estate, but I haven't, haven't found the time, <laughs> I haven't found the time <laughs> yet. I but I, yeah. Yeah. but the, the MOD are very receptive, yes. by the way. I'm having some really yeah. good discussion because they, they need to get to, to net zero by 2040. And they've recognised that one of the ways to do that is by rewilding their estate as long as they can do so in a way that fits with their modern training needs. And actually, it probably does. Whoa. They need, they tell me, they, they need more scrub and vegetation in the landscape than, than they've needed in the past because, you know, military training requirements are changing. So, um, so there's, there's great scope in places like that. It, it is landowner-led, but also the other organisations you've talked about. Yeah. Do you think the fact that it's landowner-led, and, and these other organisations, but do you feel that people general public, general perceptions might be that this is something a little bit elitist or exclusive to people who have got lots of land. Yeah, that is, that is, a, that is one of the challenges, that yeah. because size matters, mm. in a, and because, you know, like I said, three days a week covering the country, I've got, to, I've got to draw the line somewhere. So I am focusing on these bigger sites, and they do tend to be, obviously, the wealthier landowners. But we have to remember what we're trying to achieve here. We're trying to achieve landscape scale change and we need to tackle the, the relatively easy wins first in order to help inspire others to follow suit and so if I can persuade a landowner with 5,000 acres to rewild and he is and, and encourage him to do so in a way which engages his community and other neighboring farmers at a smaller scale which is always what we try to do then we are in effect having that knock-on effect on smaller smaller interests but you know I, I have to focus on the relatively easy wins to start with 
before we then you know start to work on on the joining up the smaller stuff but i do by the way i do have one or two examples where there are clusters of landowners that we've managed to encourage to join up um and do things at a, at a pretty big scale which is which is which is the you know yeah, ideal absolutely and what do you think of the approach taken by um heel rewilding i think so heel have been in touch with us with me ever yeah. since they before they started and they are essentially looking to buy a piece of land to rewild so they're a bit i mean they're, they're doing great things in terms of awareness raising and generating even more support from rewilding with the public mm. uh, they're engaging young people which yep. is brilliant really uh, jan is actually only down the road at maidenhead so she's been you know i met with her here in fact and they're doing a great job in terms of what they're actually going to do on the ground it's very similar to a individual landowner they're trying to buy a piece of land to rewild but what the, the thing that's interesting about them is that they they feel a little more inclusive in the sense that everybody who contributes will then have not a, not a ownership stake but a kind of a notional stake yep. in the land which, yep. which i like i think yeah, it's, it's, good. it's, it's, yeah. it's yeah. an interesting model yeah they're complementary we 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 made sure or they made you know jan made sure that they didn't just try and duplicate what yep. we were doing so we're complementary we don't intend to acquire land yep. you know we don't own any land and we're nope. not likely to yep. we want to stay small and we want to just catalyze other activity and what he are doing that is another activity mm. that we've helped to try to catalyze I, I get a better feeling for what rewilding britain does now thank yeah. you that, yeah. that's, that's clear okay look we've, we've talked for a long time um okay. let's just finish up where do you think we will be in rewilding terms in 50 years time Oh, bloody hell. That takes me beyond my lo- lifespan. It's a long-term <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah. um, we, we will have mainstream rewilding as an option for some parts of our country, just as other countries will have done, yeah. uh, particularly in Western Europe, yeah. for example. We, we will be in a position where there are some parts of the country that are much richer in biodiversity terms in these rewilding areas than they currently are. Whether we can do enough to slow the impact of climate change is the big question this will help in a small way but as you know it's only you know restoring five percent of the land in britain is only a tiny tiny element of the the global climate change challenge however we've got to do our bit and rewilding will help us do our bit fabulous final question then is what would be your one image or one photograph that would sum up what rewilding Britain is all about? Well, actually, we, we are creating those images because we have commissioned a wonderful animator to produce uh, animations of change in an upland landscape. Charlie's already commissioned a lowland I've landscape seen, one. I've seen, seen a lowland one. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. We've, we've, I've just literally been sent the first almost final image of that yeah. uh, upland one. Yeah. So it would be, uh, I think, because we're quite familiar with NEP and the lowland rewilding in that context it for me it would be an upland image that shows an incredibly uh, colorful patchwork of upland valley with uh, moorland alive with color with so many more trees and shrubs visible in that landscape with birds of prey in the air with lynx on the ground pine martin etc that's a wish, bristling it's a wish list bristling <laughs> with life Absolutely. it is a wish list but i'm i'm basically capturing the image that I try, that we've tried to get this animator to which is fantastic but it, yeah it needs to be it needs to be multi-textured and multi multi-colored yeah. in an upland landscape most of our uplands if you look I was just showing this guy some pictures today uh, yesterday actually yeah. 
our upland landscape at the moment is two-tone it's light green and dark green conifers dark green almost black and basically bowling light green and, uh, sheep and red where you've got the bracken and maybe a reddish brown on the yeah. bracken so it's almost two-tone and it should be multi-textured and multi-coloured yeah. Alistair, well, thank you very much indeed great, thank you so there you have it I want to thank Ali for a tremendous interview and such a lot of insight frankly there's so much there in the two interviews that I couldn't hope to summarise it effectively here so I'm going to leave you to take what you want from it I have put some broader thoughts on the webpage if you want to take a look by way of updates, as of March 2021, the Rewilding Network has now got 10 local networks across the country, 25 member projects on medium or large scale, 83 smallholder projects, and nearly 2,000 people signed up to stay involved, all of which is fantastic news. Moreover, Lord Goldsmith said, following his Green Recovery speech last July, that within Elms there will be a recognition of the value of rewilding, that Rewilding Britain will be very much involved in those discussions, and that he is absolutely convinced that we need to get the incentives right to reward and incentivize a much greater uptake of rewilding. This is all good stuff. And finally, that led to, in December 2020, rewilding being included in the DEFRA Farming is Changing booklet. And this is a huge step forward. And as a result of this, in January 2021, the Secretary of State, George Eustace, stated in his speech to the Oxford Farming Conference that the UK government has already announced that it is willing to support rewilding projects. For those who want to do it, it is a choice that we want to help. So the future is hopefully bright for rewilding. And from this conversation, I think that in rewilding Britain, we have a passionate and highly experienced team fighting for this cause and making great progress. Of course, it takes all of us to make it happen. So do get involved wherever you can. That's all from me for now. I hope you enjoyed both interviews. Have a look at the website at whatifyoujustleaveit.info and come back for my next podcast, which will be about the original rewilded landscape the Undercliffs National Nature Reserve in Devon. Take care and thanks.